need a Bible this morning. This is week three in our wisdom series. There's some notes in your bulletin. If you like to follow along, you can do so. This morning, we're going to talk about adultery and what the book of Proverbs has to say about adultery. I decided we would start with a piece of advice from the 16th president. Honest Abe, always honest, wasn't he? This is what he says about marriage. Marriage is neither heaven nor hell. It is simply purgatory. (laughs) Honest Abe. You know, I read it this week. I came across it in my study, and I thought, oh, that's kind of funny. And then I thought, ah, we can't use that. We don't believe in purgatory. I can't put that up there. And then I thought about it some more, and I thought, well, Abe Lincoln didn't believe in purgatory either. He was a Protestant, so what was he driving at? And I started to think about maybe what he meant by that statement. Some of you may know this, but Abe and his wife, Mary Todd, had, let's just say, a difficult relationship. Uh, Some of you have maybe seen a movie or documentaries about the Lincolns, and uh, it was a challenging relationship to be sure. Lincoln, uh, very driven, Abe Lincoln, very driven by politics and wanting to succeed and made multiple runs at that before he found success. And so the result of much of that is that he was absent for a lot of their marriage. I mean, there were long periods where he was just gone and not there in periods of their life where they were almost destitute. Just he didn't provide a whole lot financially for his family at times. He struggled. They struggled. And on the flip side of that, Miss Mary was very demanding and at times violent. read a story this week where she actually chased him out of the house with a knife in her hand at one point. And he went running for his life. And you read some of the stories about these two. And I know the picture doesn't look pleasant, but that's how they took pictures back then. So don't read too much into the picture. But you say, well, why did they stay together? Why didn't they just get divorced? And I don't know all of the reasons for that, but here's what I do know. The fact that they did stay together taught Abraham Lincoln several character lessons that were very valuable as he led our country during the period of the Civil War. For example, he had to learn in his marriage how to deal with difficult people that served him well as the president. And in his marriage, not only did his wife have to learn this, but he had to learn how to forgive. Maybe somebody who really and truly has wronged you in some way. And again, that served him well as our president during the Civil War period. The fact that they stayed together was a benefit to him, and it was a benefit to our country. They learned important lessons in staying together. And when Abraham Lincoln says, marriage is neither heaven nor hell, it's simply purgatory, I think the idea in his mind is this. He looked at his own life with a little bit of perspective maybe and said, this has been a purgatory of sorts for me, right? We're Protestants, we don't believe in purgatory, but the Catholic idea is that some people when you die, you go to this place that prepares you for something greater, And I think he realized God used my marriage, even a difficult marriage, to prepare me for something else. And there's also wisdom here in that he looked at marriage and he realized it's not heaven. It can't be your God. You can't look to marriage to make you happy. And it's not hell. It's not the end of the world. 
if you find yourself in a difficult marriage. I know that our culture says, no, that's the end of the world and you need to get out of it as fast as you can and find something more fulfilling. But there's wisdom here to say, it's not heaven. It's not going to make all your wildest dreams come true, but it's also not hell. It's preparing you for something greater. So I like the quote, even though it's somewhat humorous, but you know that we need more than that. And for that more, we're going to look this morning to the book of Proverbs. I'll put up on the screen our working definition of wisdom. Biblical wisdom is fearing God, knowing God's will, and living in light of God's will. That's wisdom in the Bible. It begins with fearing God. If you don't get that piece in place, everything else is a waste. So the first week in this series, we talked just about what the Bible says, what the book of Proverbs says about fearing God. After you get that piece in place, you've got to know God's will, and you've got to actually live in light of God's will. So we're not talking about IQ. We're not talking about SAT scores or ACT scores. We're not talking about grade point average or pop trivia talent. We're talking about knowing God's will as it's revealed to us in Scripture and then actually living that out in real life. That's wisdom in the Bible, and that's what we're seeking after. And this morning, we're going to think about what is God's will with regard to marriage, specifically adultery, and how do we actually live that out. In case you think that this is a peripheral issue, I just want you to know that the topic of adultery, the issue of adultery, accounts for about a tenth of the book of Proverbs, which is kind of remarkable, that this is one of very few books in the Bible specifically given to us so that we can have wisdom. And within that book, for all the things we need to know, how to deal with money, how to raise our kids, how to work hard, how to be people of integrity, how to fear God, we've got to know all these things. About one out of every ten verses in the book of Proverbs comes down to this issue in particular, adultery. There's three chapters that are almost exclusively given to this topic. Chapter 5, which we're going to study this morning. Chapter 7, which you should read on your own, is a parallel chapter to chapter 5. And then the last chapter in Proverbs gives us a positive picture of marriage. So that's a, an important thing. Not only does the book of Proverbs say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, but it also gives us something to shoot for and something to aim for. It's almost like God knew we would need help in this area. 10% of the book. It's almost like he knew back when the book was written, fast forward all the way up to 2018, this is going to be something that we struggle with. So I've given you the 10% number. Let me put up a few more numbers on the screen. 40%, 90%, 68%, and 74%. 40%. In the United States of America, roughly 40% of marriages will end in divorce. That number seems to be trending down slightly because fewer people are getting married and people are waiting longer to get married. So the reality really hasn't changed all that much except for the fact that people aren't getting married as young as they used to or as often as they used to, 40%. 90%. It's the percentage of Americans who believe that adultery is wrong, morally not right to be unfaithful to your spouse or your partner, 90%. So that's somewhat encouraging, right? 90% say it's a bad deal. 68%. Women in the United States of America who are married, who say, if I knew I could get away with it, 
I would have an affair. 74% percentage of married men in the United States of America who say, if I knew I could have an affair and get away with it and there would be no consequences, I would do it. Now, I've used those numbers before, and I came across them this week, and I started thinking over them, and I thought, there's no way that's, that can't be true. No way that's right. So I dug around. I found it in three or four places, different studies, independent studies. This is consistent. And I don't know how to make the math compute on the second number and the third and the fourth number. Where 90% of us say it's wrong, and then these amazing percentages of us turn around in the very same survey and say, but if I knew I could get away with it and there would be absolutely no consequence, I'd do it. It's almost like when God gave us the book of Proverbs and 10% of it deals with adultery, he knew that this would be an issue for us. It's almost like he knew that this would be something that we're going to struggle with. And we're going to need help in. And then we're going to need to come to his word and to say we live amongst a people who are so confused about marriage and adultery and what's right and what's wrong and how we interact with each other and how we live together. And we need wisdom from the Lord. And so we're going to try to find that this morning. I do encourage you to look at Proverbs 7, to read it on your own. It parallels much of what we're going to talk about this morning. I encourage you to look at the end of the book, Proverbs 30, and look at this positive picture of marriage at the end, 31, excuse me. But this morning, we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 5, and we're going to talk about what this chapter has to say to us about adultery. And we're going to begin just by reading it. So this is a little bit different. Most Sunday mornings in Proverbs, we're jumping around this morning. We're going to actually read a passage. So here we go. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan. When your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why would you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. And he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. 
He's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let's pray together. Father, we need wisdom. We need discretion. We need understanding. We need knowledge. Father, we need hearts that will not only hear your word, but that will receive it, will believe it. We'll be able to see through the lies of our culture and our society. Father, I pray for young people in the room this morning who are not yet married, that they would hear these warnings, that they would understand that they apply to them 100% in their life exactly where they're at today. Father, I pray for young families, for couples who are listening this morning. I pray that they would hear these warnings, that they would heed these warnings. Father, I pray for our older adults, for those who are further down the road in life and marriage, and I pray that they would hear your word this morning and they would listen to the wisdom of Proverbs. Father, whatever stage of life we find ourselves in, we want to submit our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our lives to the authority of your word. We pray for your help to that end, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One thing I want to mention is the fact that in the book of Proverbs, much of the book is written in the context of a father writing to his son. And so repeatedly throughout the book, you hear sons addressed, and in this chapter in particular, you get the idea that he's writing to his son and warning him about some of the dangers that he might face. I just want to make sure we all understand that that's the specific contextual frame point of the book, but it in no way means that women don't need to listen to this chapter. It in no way means that women are always responsible for adultery or for sin in this particular area or any other area. You take it from wherever you're at, whatever life stage, whatever your gender, whatever your situation, and you realize that this is God's wisdom to you. And what I want you to see is just four simple lessons about adultery. It's not a complicated chapter at all. You can see some of the divisions in your Bible, perhaps, between some of these verses. There'll be a little bit of extra white space, and that's the translators and the editors telling you this sort of section hangs together, and this next section sort of hangs together, and we're just going to walk through it, and I want you to see some of these truths. The first one is this. Adultery is a little G God that always disappoints and never delivers. We've talked about little G God's before on Sunday morning. Some of you may not have been here for that series. And the basic idea behind a little g God is that it's something that is not God that we look to to be our God. We look to it for happiness. We look to it for meaning. We look to it for significance and value and purpose and joy and fulfillment. We put these little g gods, these false gods in the place of the true God and adultery is one of those things. It always disappoints and it never delivers. Look at verse 3. There's a promise in adultery, and here it is. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. The author is honest enough to say, I understand the appeal of it from the outside. Whether it's the person that you're looking at across the office or the schoolroom, or whether it's the person that you're looking at on a computer screen or your handheld device. 
I understand the appeal of what you're looking to. But, verse 4, in the end she's as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Chapter 7 describes that this man who's chasing the adulteress as a cow being led to slaughter. Mindlessly chasing something that they think will make them happy. All the while marching straight to death. I understand that there's an appeal there. I understand that there's an excitement there. I understand that when you watch TV or you watch movies, it looks fun. It looks exciting. It looks like you can get away with it. You don't see the consequences. You don't see the pain. You don't see the heartbreak. You don't see all the mess that it leaves behind. But the book of Proverbs is saying to you, it's a little G God. And despite the appeal, it will always disappoint you. And it will not deliver on what it's promising to give you. Number two. The consequences are devastating. Consequences are devastating. Look at verse 8. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. I hope you read that verse with the urgency of a father looking at his son in the eyes or a mother looking her daughter in the eyes saying, stay away from it. He's not just saying, don't go commit adultery. He's saying, don't even get close to it. Don't even toy with it. Don't even play with it. Please. And then he lists out all of these reasons. Verse 9, you're going to lose your honor. Verse 9, you're going to waste the small amount of time you have been given on this earth. Verse 10, you're going to give away the fruit of your work. Study after study after study after study shows as much as our culture does not want to admit it, that families that have been ripped apart by divorce have more economic struggles than families that stay together. Why? Because you're giving your fruit to somebody else. The fruit of your labor, you're just handing it over. You may say, well, that sounds very materialistic and worldly. It's right here. It's just honest. There's going to be a consequence, and it's devastating. All of these consequences are unavoidable. I want you to listen to a verse from Proverbs 6. Can a man carry fire next to his chest in his clothes and not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. These consequences are unavoidable. And I talk to people all the time who think that they can skate around it, skirt around it, sneak by it, and you can't. There are consequences, and they are unavoidable. I was reading these verses this week. It made me think of The Breakfast Club. You remember the movie The Breakfast Club? You remember Principal Vernon, sort of that comical principal? And he looks at one of those young guys in one of the scenes, and he says, young man, don't mess with the bull. You'll get the horns. And you say, oh, that's so cheesy. But that's what Proverbs is saying to you. Don't play with fire. You're going to get burned. Can you walk around carrying an open flame up, according, up, up close to your chest and not be burned by it? Can you walk on hot coals and not have your feet singed? No. There's a consequence for this, and it's unavoidable. Proverbs 5 lists them out. Proverbs 6 reminds us that these consequences are devastating and unavoidable. Number three, there's an alternative, and the alternative to adultery is marriage. 
The alternative is marriage. I went to school a long time. And in that school, I had to read a lot of different things. I feel like I'm a pretty well-read person on the whole. I'll just confess to you that one of the things I don't like reading and have never been good at reading or understanding is poetry. It's just maybe my brain is too type A analytical. I just struggle with it. I had friends in college who liked to write poetry, and they liked to go to poetry slams where you go and you read your poems and everyone, you know, says that's the greatest. And I just sort of looked at those guys and gals and thought, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. What am, I'm not going. I don't know what anyone's saying. I don't understand it. I don't see the point. I don't see the value. But here's one thing I appreciate. I appreciate Hebrew poetry because they're pretty to the point. They just kind of lay it out there where a dummy like me can make sense of it. And the alternative here to adultery is, if this is an issue for you, get married. Stay married. Don't chase her. Chase your wife. Don't chase him. Chase your husband. Look what it says in verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's the alternative. You don't have to chase it somewhere else. God has provided for that. This is the beauty of the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview does not say sex is bad and you just need to stay away from it and just silo yourself off to the world and resist all of these urges. The Bible says, look, God made you. He knows what your desires are. He knows what your needs are. And he's provided for that. He doesn't expect you to have some sort of superhuman ability to resist temptation in some way that just seems impossible. He's provided for those desires and he's provided for them in the context of marriage. So find a wife, find a husband, and find your satisfaction and your joy physically there. Don't chase someone else for that. Here's the problem. The problem is that our culture has taken God's design for marriage in so many ways and flipped it up on its head. And I'll give you just one example. One example. In our society today, you and I are taught that love is what sustains a marriage. Your love for each other is what holds your marriage together. When the Bible tells you that marriage is what sustains your love for each other and holds your love together. But that's not what our culture says. In movies or films, whether they say it openly or whether they just present it to us in story form and it's very seductive and very dangerous, we are taught over and over and over again, no, 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 no. A marriage is held together by love. When the Bible is saying, no, 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 no. Your love for each other is held together by marriage. And the danger is that you and I find this temptation when love isn't present or a certain emotion isn't present or that spark is gone to say, well, something's wrong with the marriage. I need to look outside of my marriage to find that thing again. When what the Bible is saying is, no, 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 no. Marriage keeps you right where you're supposed to be, one man and one woman, so that you're not chasing for it all over the place, never able to find it, but you find it where God intended you to find it. Let me give you two quotes from two German theologians that help make the point that I'm talking about. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, it's not your love that sustains the marriage, but rather the marriage that sustains your love. Just drill that into your brain. Drill it down deep. 
get rid of the Disney idea and the Hollywood idea and the TV idea that love is just going to be this emotion that overtakes you and that's what's going to keep you connected to a person. That's not reality. Marriage, this covenant commitment is what keeps you connected to that person. Marriage is what sustains your love. From another German theologian, Martin Luther, he's always a little bit funnier, and he says it like this, the first love is drunk. When intoxication wears off, then comes the real marriage love. I like it. I like it. You understand what he's saying? It's the same idea, but said a little bit differently. You get into a relationship and you're essentially drunk on love, but it's not going to last, and sooner or later you're going to have a hangover. And that's when you get to real marriage love. And what a tragedy that so many people in our culture only experience the drunkenness. They don't ever hang around and stick it out long enough to experience the real thing. Listen, love is not powerful enough to maintain your marriage, but a commitment of marriage, a covenant commitment to your spouse is enough to sustain your love. Even when you don't feel like it's there, even when you feel like it's gone, even when you feel temptation to chase it somewhere else, that covenant and that commitment is what keeps you bound to each other. Number four, you can't hide adultery from the Lord. You can't hide it. I don't wear, remember where I read this, but I read one time about a, a university town. And this university, like most, had a, a parents' weekend. Early in the fall semester, they always had a weekend where parents would come and visit their kids and see how they're doing. And there was a bar, restaurant bar, but a bar, right across from the college campus. And every year when parents' week rolled around, this bar took out an ad in the school student newspaper and the ad said, bring your parents in for lunch. We'll pretend like we don't know you. Further down the block, there was a church, a little church right across from the campus. And they picked up on it. They started taking out their own ad. Parents week, same week, same paper. Bring your parents into church. We'll pretend like we know you. It's not hard to fool parents or grandparents. It's not hard to fool spouses. People do it all the time. It's certainly not hard to fool pastors. You're not going to fool God. For all the things that we think we can pull over on other people, just listen to Proverbs 5.21. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. God knows you can hide it from me. You can hide it from your Sunday school class. You can hide it from your friends. You can hide it from your spouse. You can hide it from anybody that you want to try to hide it from. Great. But you can't hide it from God. He knows and he sees and nothing is hidden from him. I want us to end with this question. What does the New Testament say about adultery? And quickly, I want to give you a few thoughts. First, from Jesus. Jesus reminds us that the seventh commandment applies to all sexual sin, even sins of the heart. 
So we're talking about adultery. We're looking at Proverbs 5. All of this is rooted in the seventh command in the Ten Commandments that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And you understand that thousands of years later, when the Son of God is walking the earth and he's teaching, he looks at his disciples and he quotes that command, You shall not commit adultery. And he says, You guys realize, you realize that's ultimately a heart issue. That's not just an external thing, but that's a heart thing. This is one of those commands that when we're younger, we like to look at and say, ah, I'm good on at least one. Or maybe even when we're older, we look at, we come with a, a childlike interpretation. We say, ah, well, I'm good on that one. And Jesus walks in and just blows that idea away. He's saying this command not to commit adultery Really, at the base of it, it's an issue of your heart. Yes, it includes your actions and the things you do or don't do, but it also includes your heart and your desires, the things you want to do, the things you would do if you could get away with them, the things that you wish you could do because you see other people doing them, or maybe just the things in our digital age that you only do on a screen. And you would never have the nerve to do it in real life. But it seems really safe and really easy to do it over a piece of technology. Jesus is taking Proverbs 5. And he's just dropping a bomb in the middle of it. And he's saying, you realize that this is really about sexual purity, period. It's not just about adultery. It's about sexual purity, whatever your life stage. If you're married or you're single or you're dating or you're widowed, or you're a widower, or you're in a great marriage, or a terrible marriage, or you're committing sin externally, physically, you're committing sin over technology. Let's just lump all of it together and understand that what Proverbs 5 is calling us to is sexual purity. Secondly, the Apostle Paul comes along and he reminds us that unrepentant adulterers are not going to enter the kingdom of God unrepentant adulterers will not enter the kingdom of God. And I'll put 1 Corinthians 6 on the screen. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We could talk about each of those individually. Let's just stay focused on what we're talking about. Paul says adulterers, unrepentant adulterers, are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, I am fully aware, as your pastor, I am not so detached in some ivory tower that I don't know how the world thinks when they hear that verse. That the world just wants to rage and scream and say that's bigoted and it's narrow-minded. Who are you to be so high and mighty? That's what it says. Unrepentant adulterers will not enter the kingdom. If you don't like it, you should just read one more verse. Because the very next verse gives us hope. Such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Here's the reality. When you listen to what Jesus has to say about adultery, you better get really uncomfortable. If you have ears to hear spiritual things at all, you better listen to what Jesus has to say about this issue, and you better say to yourself, I'm in trouble. Because I'm guilty. Either in my heart or my mind, or physically, or digitally, or however. I'm in trouble. 
I have fouled this thing up. And Paul says, if you're unrepentant in that and you persist in that, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But there's hope because some of you, he's thinking about his friends in Corinth, and he says, some of you fell into that list, but you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That leads us to the last idea, which is this. The author of Hebrews tells us, he reminds us, we have a high priest who can sympathize and help. A high priest who can sympathize and help. We'll put Hebrews 4 up on the screen. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect, every type of temptation that you have faced, he faced. And whereas you and I give in relatively easy, he never gave in. He faced the full force of those temptations, and he was without sin. And because that's true, with confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, when we think about what Proverbs has to say about adultery, I hope you'll listen. I hope you'll listen to the warnings. That it's a little g-god that will always disappoint you. It will never deliver on what it promises. That there are consequences that are unavoidable. That those consequences are devastating. That God has provided an alternative so that you don't have to give in to this mess. I hope you listen to all that. But I also hope you feel some conviction. And I hope you realize this is not something that I can be good enough to live up to on my own. Proverbs has set a standard here that I've fallen short of. When I listen to what Jesus has to say about this issue, I realize just how far I've fallen short. And ultimately, my hope for you is not that you leave with a checklist of, I need to do this, but that you leave looking to Jesus, the great high priest who has been tempted in every way yet without sin. And he lived a life of righteousness where you and I have failed miserably. And he died on the cross taking the punishment, the wrath of God that should have fallen on adulterers like us so that we could be forgiven. And he's available to help in time of need. With confidence, you can draw near to his throne, not wondering... Is he going to cut me off? Is he going to be tired of me asking for help? Is he, going to, is he going to be tired of me coming with the same issue over and over and over again? I just can't get my act together. No, you come boldly with confidence, trusting that he is able to help you in your time of need. So I'm going to ask you to bow. We're going to pray together as we wrap up. Father, we hear your word. We know that we have fallen short. We know that we need grace to forgive us, to make us right in your eyes. Father, we need help when we face temptation. Father, I pray that these warnings that we've talked about would be pressed into our hearts and our minds, that we would take these things seriously like the book of Proverbs takes them seriously. Father, give us wisdom to know your will, to live it out all under the umbrella of fearing you as God. 
Father, ultimately we look to Jesus. We don't look to Proverbs or to the law. We look to Jesus for life and forgiveness. We look to your spirit for new life. And we look to your spirit to convict us of sin. Father, we trust in our great high priest who died our death. Father, I pray for folks in this room. I pray that they would take seriously what your word takes serious. And I pray that they would run to Jesus as their great high priest. Father, be honored as we take a moment to reflect and to respond. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.